Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Hey, I just want you to know uh, my church in Alpharetta, Georgia, right outside of Atlanta, loves you guys. We pray for you guys. Um, we're grateful for you. And it is an honor to be here with you. So uh, Pastor Peter, he emailed me not long ago and he says, hey, we're in this whole sermon series through the Bible. And I would love for you to teach on the Passover. But not only that, if you would go ahead and recount all that happened um, through the book of Genesis before you get there. So I'm like, great. Basically preach the whole Old Testament. So that's what we're going to do. So if you have a Bible, grab it and meet me over in Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, it is the most significant chapter, I would say, in the entire Old Testament. And it frames, uh, it frames Israel, their history from the past to the present and into the future. What you're going to see is this theme all the way through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is really a theme of God taking chaos of the world and bringing order out of it. But then you're going to see this reversal of that through our sin. It always brings chaos back into the world. I mean, I don't know if you feel this way. Where I live in America, it feels like chaos is everywhere. We've got a tumultuous election that's about to happen. There's wars going on all over the world. It seems like our culture is shifting. Uh, Anybody else feel that way where you are? Does it feel like just the world is on this rocky soil and you don't know what's coming next? That's what the Bible says sin does. There's this continual earthquake all around us and these moments where where life stands still and you don't know what to make of it. If if you felt that at all, that's what the Israelites felt during the Exodus. And it felt like these 400 years of bondage and and chaos has been ensuing and and they don't know what to do. Uh, We had an event like this in my life happen two years ago. Two years ago, my wife, uh, she calls me and she says, Sweetheart, my, my water just broke. And, you know, that's, that's amazing news. We got a baby on the way. Um, the only problem is, is she was 20 weeks pregnant. So we rushed to the emergency room only to find out that her water had broke. And, and a doctor sits down with us and he tells us, hey, listen, I need you to know that you are going to deliver this baby within the next 48 hours. There's a 99% chance that, that this, this child is going to arrive. And and if you, if you have a baby at 20 weeks, it's, it, it, the viability of that child is, is quite significant. Um, well, we have three other kids at home, so this is baby number four. Um, and we're in a whirlwind, and we don't know what to do. Um, miraculously, by the grace of God, we get through those 48 hours, and she doesn't deliver our baby. Well, then the, the neonatologists and the doctors, they come back into the room to inform us, hey, we have a different problem now. Now, because your wife's water has broke, and we don't know when this baby is going to come. There's a risk of infection in your wife, and she's going to have to stay inpatient in the hospital because if she gets an infection, she could die or the baby could die, and we have no clue when this baby is going to come. Again, we have three other kids at home. It's during COVID. Uh, my kids are not allowed to enter into the hospital. We, we don't know what to do, um, and, and it just seems like the world had stood still. By the grace of God, she didn't deliver until they had to induce her labor at 34 weeks. Um, so my son Keller, he's, he's almost two years old. He's completely healthy. But those were some of the most trying two months of our life. And then the, the NICU after that, 
And then the ensuing um, ra radical like transformation of our family. My, my six-year-old um, was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease that made her hair fall out. My, um, no, I'm sorry, that was my eight-year-old. My six-year-old had trauma through all this event that went on and had to do a bunch of speech therapy. And it just felt like our world fell apart. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like the world around you is falling apart and there's absolutely nothing you can, can do to control the situation? If you've ever been there, that's how Israel felt. They felt like the world was in chaos. They felt like there was nothing they could do. They felt like their story had been shaped by, by something that they had no control over. What I want to show you in the next couple minutes is that the storyline of the Bible, though, is that God wants to take the chaos that's going on in your life and he wants to bring it back to order. It starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. If you, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, it says that God created out of nothing, literally ex nihilo, out of nothing. God took the chaos of this world and he begins to speak and everything comes about. Right, you, the, you, you see that the stars are hung in the sky. The earth is orbiting around the sun. Gravity is holding the entire thing together. And then God says, let us make man in our image. So God takes the, the culmination of all this stuff and he, and he creates you to be in relationship with him, to be in perfect unity, to have dominion over this thing called earth. And then everything falls apart. The beauty of his creation the relationship that you have, Genesis chapter three, man walks away from God. And what begins to happen is the world begins to unravel. It's almost like you pulled the thread out of a shirt that never stopped. And little by little by little, you see that the world is unraveling. Now, when you get to Exodus chapter 12, when you get to Exodus chapter 12, what you're gonna see is this pivotal moment where God is going to show them a glimpse of how he's gonna bring the whole thing back together. If you understand this book, these 66 books right here written by 40 different authors covering this course of about 1,500 years of history, what you understand is the storyline of the Bible is that God is going to take the chaos of this world, create something beautiful out of it, and then he's going to take the chaos of our sin and he's going to recreate the world the way that it was always supposed to be. And you see this sprinkled all the way through the scriptures. Like you guys have already walked through the book of Genesis, right? Adam. Adam and Eve, they sin. What is the very first thing that God does? He asks, hey, Adam, where are you? He calls them back to himself. He kills an animal and he clothes them with his righteousness to give them a glimpse of what he's going to do to your sin. Martin Luther called this the proto, which means first, euangelion gospel, where God is going to show you that, hey, even though you broke this world, I'm going to fix it. Abraham, he takes a guy who, who cannot have a child, is beyond the age of having a child, and he takes him and he promises him that he's going to give him a son and this son is going to be the heir of all things, and the Messiah is going to come from him. God is showing Abraham that I can take even your death and bring life through it. You get Jacob. Jacob's story is a lot like my story, a life of deception, which is what the word Jacob actually means in Hebrew. It means the great deceiver. And, and Jacob's story is nothing but deception. He's manipulated by his mom. His dad likes his brother more than him. His brother wants to kill him. His uncle deceives him. He, he has all this turmoil. He's a broken, insecure, miserable man. Until he gets to the end of himself, he wrestles with God, and God changes his name. He asks him the most important question that anybody will ever ask you. Who are you? And he says, I'm Jacob. He says, no, you're not. Not anymore. Your name is Israel, and I will make a promise through you to recreate all of the things that you have broken. You get to Joseph. 
Joseph's brothers get jealous. They sell him into slavery. He's accused of sexual assault. He's put in jail. He hits rock bottom. God creates the circumstances so that he can raise to the ranks of power in Egypt over Pharaoh's kingdom and change the world over and over and over again, you see. You see that God has a plan to take the chaos that we create and to create beauty through it. God takes the things that you don't think that you can control. He works in you so that he can work through you. Here's a lesson that I've learned. God cares way more about what he's doing in you than what he does through you. And oftentimes God is creating you into the type of person so that your life's not in chaos, so that you can be stable enough that he can do something beautiful. God takes the darkness and he creates light. He takes chaos and he creates order. That is the story of the Bible. God draws you out to draw you close. So if you want to get the Exodus story, you've got to get that story. So here's what's going on. The Exodus story, the story of redemption, 400 years enslaved in Egypt. And God, God takes a man named Moses through this promise and he takes them out. See, what he wants you to see is Exodus. Exodus is the story of slavery. It's the bondage that you all feel. It's, it's, this, it's this picture of what most of us feel like all the time. And yet God wants to show you that you are not made for this world. And the reason why oftentimes you feel the chaos that you feel is because you're made for another world. I, I love, C.S. Lewis said it like this. If, you find, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Every single one of those people, every one of them throughout the whole Old Testament needed to understand the seriousness of their sin and the inability to save themselves so that they can understand their redemption doesn't come from them at all. It comes from another. See, after Joseph saved the nation of Israel, they get comfortable in this land of Egypt. Y'all, there's a lesson here for all of us. What ends up happening in most of our lives is after God's redemption, we tend to get comfortable. And when we get comfortable, we tend to always want to go back to the same things that we went to before. That's what's happened to God's people. The slavery that they find themselves in, they found themselves comfortable there. Well, God, God had to call them out. God called a man named Moses, and he put him in a position to save the nation. If you actually go back to Exodus chapter 1, Exodus chapter 1, God is setting up the story of redemption because Pharaoh, Pharaoh had looked at the nation of Israel. They had gotten too large. And, he, and what does he do? He, he creates a genocide in order to stop the nation. But these Hebrew midwives, they saved these boys. By sending Pharaoh down this river, God is showing you that I still have a redemption plan. I am with you. So God takes Moses. He grows him up in this place in Egypt. And then for 40 years, he sends him out into the wilderness. And for 40 years, he's teaching him that he is his God of redemption because oftentimes God needs to do something in us before he does something through us. He takes this man, he shows him who he is. He reveals himself through a burning bush. He reveals himself through a staff. He tells him over and over again, I am the great I am. And like the Great Commission says, I am with you. What he is trying to do is he's trying to form us into the type of person he can use. So if you ever feel like if you ever feel like God has forgotten about you, what you need to know is that God has not. He hears you, he sees you, and he wants to use you. So you get back to Moses. Moses, Moses is sent back to Egypt. 40 years in the wilderness, he goes back to Egypt. He goes back to the place of slavery. Think about that for a moment. God often sends you back to the place that you came from because oftentimes he needs you to go back there 
so that he can free you from there. Well, when God tells him, hey, go tell, go tell Pharaoh, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Pharaoh's response is, who's your God? Who's your God and why would I listen to him? Moses, he takes that staff that God gave him, throws it on the ground, it turns into a snake. And, and you would think Pharaoh would be like, okay, go. But he doesn't. He has these magicians that come in and they do the impressive things. They do the same exact thing. And God continually warns Pharaoh through plagues. And each plague gets progressively worse. One of the things you need to know, because we don't have time to go over this, but each one of those plagues have a, a corresponding God that the, that the Egyptians would worship. Think about the first one. The Nile River would have been the worship, would have been the main thing that the Egyptians worshiped because it was the source of their life. Well, God turns the Nile into, into blood to show them, hey, your gods are no match for me. And little by little, creation begins to unravel. One after another, God shows them that the things that they look to for their life and satisfaction aren't actually bringing them life. It's destroying them. Like, do you get that? Do you get that every single time that you go back into the slavery or to the chaos or to the bondage, that you believe that you can live a life without God? It does not bring you life at all. It actually brings chaos, and it unravels the beautiful thing that God provided to protect you from. It, it, we can see this all over the place. Maybe it's, maybe it's security for your family. And you feel like if I just made enough money, if I just made enough money, we'd be happy, we'd be fine. And what you find is if you have an unhealthy relationship with that thing and you look to that thing to be your provider, it doesn't provide for you. It actually enslaves you to that very thing. Whether it's health or, or prosperity or whatever those things may be, we do the same exact thing and God is trying to give each and every one of us a lesson that those things will not save you. So these, these plagues, they get progressively worse. And they're progressive warnings to Pharaoh because God even cares about him. It's warning after warning after warning. That it's God's grace to show you that it's not too late. Then you get to this 10th plague where we're going to spend the majority of our time what you need to understand is the first nine plagues are all done universally by God. But the 10th plague is quite different. The 10th plague, the one that we're going to look at, the 10th plague requires participation from the people. See, the first nine plagues are enacted by God, but the, first, the ninth or the 10th one takes faith. It takes participation. And that's how redemption works. It's the central theme of the Bible. It's called the Passover. God invites the nation of Israel to participate in this really important thing. Here's the big idea for the, um, for the Passover. Liberation or freedom happens through the sacrifice of another, but it, it demands your involvement. Let me say that again. Liberation happens through the sacrifice of another, but it demands your involvement. That's the big idea for the Exodus Passover story. Let's Walk through the passage, and I want to show it to you really quickly, and then we'll apply it. Verse 1 says this, The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Once you get to the tenth plague, everything changes. God slows down after these nine sequential plagues, and he stops them, and he says, Moses and Aaron, this is a new beginning for you. What I need you to know is what is about to happen in this moment is going to change everything, and you're even going to mark your calendars by what's about to happen here. The Passover is about new life. From the very beginning, this is what God is trying to show them. I'm going to give you a fresh start again. 
The month here in Hebrew would actually have been the month of Nisan. It's in the springtime, and you need to remember that because it's really important for what's going to happen. Verse 3. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their mother's house, a lamb for the household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and the nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. A couple of things you need to realize right here in all these details is this. This is supposed to be a communal meal. You, you might not realize this, but at least in my culture, most people think that their relationship with God is individual, and it might be individual, but it is communal too. God has always made us for one another. And in the most significant moment in Israel's history, what does he do? He says, gather together with your family. And if your family is too small, you need to bring your neighbors along with you because what you are about to experience is not meant to be experienced alone. It's meant to be done in the community. It's meant to be done in the church. Now, I want you to notice another little detail here that I think is quite important. If you look down in your Bible and you look at the lambs, Notice this, it starts off with a lamb. And then he moves over to the lamb. But then the last thing he says in verse 5 is he says, your lamb. I think that there's something important about the progression here because that's how spiritual progression works. For many of us, our experience with God is he's just a God at first. I don't know, maybe it's the first time you looked up at the night sky and you saw the stars in the sky and you realized just how small you are. Like that's a significant moment for you to realize, man, there must be a God out there. But if you stop at that moment, you've missed the point. For a lot of people where I live, they're, even, oh, they're willing to go so far along to say that maybe Jesus is the God. Like, okay, I, I get it. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a, he died a gruesome death, and he rose from the dead, and he is the God. And yet, until he becomes your God, you've missed all of it. He has to move from a God to the God to your God. There's something about the, the personal pronoun that has to become possessive in all of our lives if we're going to get the gospel. When does he become your God? Have you submitted to him? Have you taken this, this idea, okay, God, you're not just a God, you're not just the God, but you are my God. You are my God and you have my life and I surrender to your lordship. That's what you see happening here in this communal meal. Verse 7, then then they shall take some of the blood and they shall put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs and they shall eat of it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. So God tells them on the 14th day of the month, take the blood of this lamb, put it over the doorpost so that he can pass over their houses says they need to cook the entire lamb. Now, this is really important, and we're going to get back to this. Verse 10. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. 
And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. You know, what's fascinating here is how he tells them to eat it. We're going to get to why he tells them to eat it, but did you notice what he says? He says, hey, I want you to eat it with the belt fastened and shoes on your feet. You know why? They're going to have to leave quickly. They're going to have to leave quickly. They need to be ready. It's a picture for all of us of what's going to happen one day. One day when God comes back, the same exact thing is going to take place. You got to understand this. The only thing that was different about Israel than Egypt was the blood of the lamb on the doors. And what he's telling them is, you don't know when I'm coming, so you need to be ready. What do you think would be different in our lives if we lived this way? That very night, the destroyer was coming to Egypt, and he was going to kill the firstborn of every single person, every person that did not have the blood of the lamb on the door. And I need you to notice that God was not saying that he was going to kill all the Egyptians' kids. He was saying he was killing everybody that didn't have the blood of the lamb on the door. Listen, the only thing, the only thing that made Israel different than the nations was the blood of the lamb. God was like, I need you to be ready. I need you to be ready, and I need you to live as if I am coming back at any moment. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like there's an apathy that lives in my world where most people just don't believe that Jesus could come back at any moment. And I think the picture of this marker in Israel's history is live as if I'm coming. What would it look like in most of our lives if we lived this way, if we took this serious enough to believe that God could come back at any moment? I'll tell you what I think would happen. I think we'd live a whole lot more holy. I think we'd think twice about the things that we tend to do and we do carelessly. I think that we would love people with more compassion. I think that we would serve more often. I think that we'd be more attentive to the things going on in our lives. The Christian life is meant to be lived as if you had boots on your feet and you were ready to go at any time. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Blood in the Bible, it represented life. You even see different parts of the Bible. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Blood had to be shed for the sacrifice to be made. God is saying this. God is saying that you will either shed your own blood or you'll be freed by the shedding of a blood of another. That is the only two options. That either somebody will stand in the gap for you or you're going to have to pay for yourself. Verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread and on the first day you shall remove the leaven out of your houses for if anyone eats what is leavened, from that day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. And it might be a little confusing where, where you're getting this transition between, between the lamb and this bread, but it's going to be really important. What you need to understand is leaven or, or yeast had two reasons that, that it would happen here. First one is this. It took a long time to rise, and they didn't have a long time. God is saying, hey, if you wait on the bread to rise, the Egyptians are coming, so you better hurry up. The second reason is, is leaven actually in the Bible represented corruption. Remember this? Gospels, Jesus tells you to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. 
He's saying what's going to happen is I'm creating a new culture for you, and this culture is a culture that needs to be pure and without corruption. It's going to be important. Jump down to verse 21. I want to show you what all this means, and then I want to apply it for you. Verse 21, then Moses called all the elders of Israel and he said to them, go and select the lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in blood that is in the basin and touch the lentils and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. This is really significant. Moses told them, when you wake up in the morning, you will either have a dead son or a dead lamb. And what you need to understand is, your entire life is going to be marked by this moment. The Bible is shaped by this moment in history. From this point forward, the Exodus was not only going to mark their past, it was going to mark their future redemption. What he tells them is, hey, I need you to go let everybody know that this moment in history is going to be a picture for you of your redemption. And you are going to remember this forever, and you're going to need to teach it to your children, because one day, this is exactly how God is going to redeem you. Fast forward the tape, and you get to Jesus on the first day of the year, which would have been the year, the month of Nisan, if you remember verse 1. In the springtime, Jesus would enter into Jerusalem. Matter of fact, he would actually do it historically on the 10th day of the month. He would enter the Mount of Olives, and on the 14th day of the month, he would be crucified. He would become the Passover lamb, where he would take his blood and he would wipe it over the doorpost, if you will. If you saw the two doors and the lintels, it made a cross. And Jesus Christ himself would do that for you, so that whenever God looked at you, if you would receive him, he would be able to pass over your sins. Now, what's fascinating is on the 15th day, you remember the day of unleavened bread? It's a picture of Jesus who would go into the grave and would enter without corruption. Moses would go on to say that even of this lamb, the do- that, the, that the bones would not be broken of this lamb in verse 46. And he's pointing to the fact that Jesus would fulfill all prophecy. What you have to understand and what the nation of Israel understood was that the blood of an animal could It could cover your sins, but it could not take them away. That their liberation had to come at the, it had to come at the sacrifice of another. And yet this sacrifice wasn't enough. It was pointing to a better sacrifice. It was pointing to a perfect lamb, the lamb of God. Everything in the Bible is pointing to this moment. 400 years of bondage. At this moment where God would speak. The very first words that God would tell the nation of Israel is tell Pharaoh that I am who I said that I am. I am Yahweh. If you actually read the Bible, at the end of the Old Testament, there's a 400-year gap. It's almost like they're in a spiritual exodus where God would show up again, and the very first words that he would say is that I am your God. I am your God, and I came to redeem you. He is showing you in this announcement of the Messiah that he came to take away the sins of the world. Remember how John the Baptist said it? The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. This entire Passover story is pointed to a greater Passover. It's pointing to the story of redemption of the entire Bible. 
It's a sign of the greatest sacrifice ever made that God himself, who would put on flesh, who would become your perfect sacrifice, who would live your perfect life and die your death in your place so that whenever God comes back one day, there's either going to be the sacrifice of you or the sacrifice of another. And the question is, which one will we take? Will we take the blood of Jesus that was wiped across that cross and will we receive it as our own? Or will we, will we be the ones that have to pay our own? Paul said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not just some, that's, that's what Jesus wanted you to see or God wanted you to see in the Exodus. The thing that was different between Egypt and Israel was not their religion and it was not their righteousness. The thing that was different for them was the blood of the lamb. And y'all, I don't know, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's nothing different between you and everybody out here in KL. The only thing that separates you and everybody else is the blood of the lamb. You're not covered by your religious freedom that you think that you have. You're not covered by your conformity or your good works. You are covered by the blood of the lamb. Jesus, he came to take us out of this spiritual exodus and to bring us back to a place of freedom. To take the chaos of this world, the chaos of your life, the thing that separates you from the thing that you know that you need most. And the center of the whole story, the center of what you guys are doing this year is the Passover story. It's that Jesus Christ would do what you never could do. And he would do it for you to bring you freedom. But not just, not just freedom from, this is really important, freedom to. See, after the Passover, and you guys are going to get here, God calls the nation of Israel out. He brings them to a new place and gives them a new culture and gives them a land. And it's exactly what he's going to do for us. It's not just a spiritual exodus, but it's a physical exodus too. Y'all, I wish I could convince everybody in the world of this, that the reason why you feel like something is missing in your life is because there is. You were made for another. That Blaise Pascal calls this, this God-shaped hole in all of our lives. That, and if you try to fill it with anything but God, you will always feel like there's something missing. And that's because there is. You're not made for this world. You're made for another. And you can either try to be the sacrifice for your own life, or you can, you can have life through the sacrifice of another. John 3.16, one of the simplest verses in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave gave. Gave. Do you ever think about that? See, the gospel might be free to you, but it cost him everything. His firstborn son. His firstborn son put on flesh. His firstborn son sp spilled his blood so that you never would. He gave his son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God gave. Listen, he didn't just give to bring you deliverance from something. He gave so that he can deliver you to something. He wants to bring you home. He wants to set you free. And you need to know, you need to know that the only thing that makes any difference to any of us is if you believe this truth. It's not your good works and it's not your religious conformity. It's the fact that you, by faith, have put your faith in the blood of the Lamb. You've participated in the tenth sacrifice. That God says, hey, I need you to believe this. It took faith. It took faith for the Israelites to believe what God was saying. 
And it's going to take faith for you to receive this sacrifice too. They had to act. And so do you. I love the way Tim Keller said it. It says, God is going to send an angel through the most powerful, most destructive force in the most powerful nation on earth. And the only way that we can withstand it is through the Lamb. The same thing's going to happen for all of us. Like, I don't know if you get it, but that's true today. Too many of us are living as if we can fight our own battles, as if we can withstand our own storms. And that's not how this thing works. Oftentimes, God takes the fool of this world to shame you. If you ever read through the whole Bible, here's what you're going to see. God does the most incredibly ridiculous things to show you that you don't fight your own battles. The nation of Israel, they cross over the Jordan. They get into Jericho. What does he do? He says, hey, I want you to just walk around for seven days and sing. Can you imagine how ridiculous that would be? The worst, worst strategy ever. Gideon, Gideon comes with this massive army. What does he say? I want you to actually eliminate your army down to 300 people so that you can recognize that you don't do this thing. See, God's rescue plan for your life is not power. It's not position. It's not wealth. It's not serving. It's submitting to the blood of the lamb. It's, it's recognizing that you can't save yourself. You can't do it yourself. And the only question is, is are you willing to participate in the sacrifice? Do you know what your participation is? It's submission. That's all it is. It's recognizing that there's nothing you can actually do. See, here's the reality is the Bible says that there are really only two options when the angel of the Lord comes back. Either you die or you receive the sacrifice of another. There really only ever has been one truly innocent person on, on this earth, and his name is Jesus. He lived your perfect life. He died your death. He rose from the grave. He enslaves each and every one of us. Like I told you, the blood of an animal can cover their sins, but it could not take their sins away. Only Jesus can do that in any of our lives. And you know what's beautiful? If that were the end of the whole story, it would be a pretty incredible story. But it's not. You see, like I told you at the very beginning, Jesus created. In the beginning, he created everything. He took chaos and made order out of it. Genesis chapter 3, everything begins to unravel and order becomes chaos through sin. You get to the Exodus and God gives you a glimpse of what he's going to do. And when Jesus comes back and puts on flesh and lives your perfect life and dies your death in your place, he says something. He says, behold, the kingdom of heaven is here. When he prays, he prays, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the reality is, is one day when he comes back, he's going to bring you back to the place a beautiful order. Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. You know, I always find that to be a fascinating statement. The sea was no more. As if there's not going to be oceans. It's, it's a literary technique called hyperbole. Or He's not actually saying that there's not going to be water. The sea represented all the uncertainty, all the chaos in life. When God split the 
split the Red Sea, he was showing you, I control the uncontrollable. When Jesus walked on water, calmed the storms. Listen to what he's saying, because the blood of the lamb was put over the doorpost. One day, God's going to come back, and he's going to bring heaven down. He's going to control the most uncontrollable things that you never could control. He said, I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying anymore for the former things have passed away. The Exodus story wasn't just about a spiritual liberation. It was about a physical liberation. It's a picture of what Jesus came to do for you. He didn't just come to take away your sins. He came to bring you home. And one day he's going to. One day God is going to come back down. He's going to bring heaven back down to earth. He's going to fix the things that that broke this world. Like J.R.R. Tolkien famously said, he is going to make all the sad things become untrue. What a beautiful sight. I don't know what the sad things are in your life. I don't know what you hold on to. The illness of a child, a broken relationship, deep hurt, cancer, poverty. One day, because of the blood of that lamb posted over the doorpost, God is going to take you out of the bondage of this world. And he's going to bring you back into a place that's peaceful, Beautiful, you and God in perfect relationship forever and ever and ever. And at the center of that is the cross. That's the Exodus story. The Exodus story isn't just their story. The Exodus story is our story. The fact that God himself would put on flesh and he would spill his blood to give you life. is the story of the Bible. These 66 books, written by 40 different authors, tell one complete story. God created, we rebelled, he stood as your redemption, and one day he's going to fix all of it. The question is when he comes back, is he going to find you? Or is he going to find the blood of the Lamb? Posted over the doorpost of your life. When Jesus comes and he asks you those questions, What did you do with my son? And when God does, what are you going to say? Did you receive him or not? Because that's the only question that actually matters. It's not whether or not you were a good person or you moved over here and did great work or you came to church or you were a good husband or a good wife. It's, It's simply one question. What did you do with Jesus? Did you receive him as your own? Did you find liberation in him? Because the only thing that makes you different than anybody else is the blood of the lamb. See, that's the Passover. Freedom through the sacrifice of another. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your word. I know that this was a quick flyover of some deep stuff, but God, I pray that you would, that you would use this, that you would use the story of Jesus who lived our perfect life and died our death and rose from the grave 
call us home. Father, whatever bondage some of us feels in this very moment, I pray that you would free us from it, that you would liberate us, that you would give us safety and a home and, and a longing for a home. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what you have done. God, I give you grace and honor. Because the very last words that you said were not try harder, but you said to tell us that it is finished. It is finished. Thank you, Jesus, for being our redemption. I pray that if anybody in this room has never received that redemption, that they would find it in Jesus' name.